Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. One of the purposes of this show is to make you guys more educated, to teach you, and to also have people on here, guests that have different opinions than you. I want to increase your financial literacy, but also I want you all to become experts in not just Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin, and some of the larger ones, but I also want you to become experts in the coins and tokens and projects that are just different. And, you know, I'm not vouching for them. I'm not saying they're good or bad, but it's a good thought experiment and it's good wargaming and stress testing for our brains to have people on this show who will talk about their versions of their blockchains and why they believe theirs are the best. And my job as host is to ask the difficult questions. So I was very pleased to have Dr. Lehman Baird on the show today, who's the co-founder and chief scientist of Hedera Hashgraph. The Hashgraph consensus algorithm that uses asynchronous Byzantine fault tolerance is very, very, I'm going to say life-changing if it can actually work and if a lot of the issues can be worked out. Well, we talked about all these different things, and if it sounds like too complicated for you, I promise you I broke it down and we went into this debate with a lot of mutual respect and understanding what the comparisons and what the differences are between Bitcoin, Ethereum, Hashgraph, HBARS, and a lot of these other projects. Uh, We talked about governance. We talked about why proof of work is good and why proof of work may be bad. We talked about some of the different consensus algorithms. We talked about how gossip can actually be solved by blockchains. I know it sounds crazy, but this was such a great brain learning experience for me. I love doing this show. Uh, I don't want to take too long on the intro because you have to follow the course of the show. And I promise you by the end of it, you can go back and say, wow, I fully understand why Charlie gets so excited about these different socioeconomic thought experiments. And so give some love to the sponsors. I'm Charlie Schramm. You're listening to Untold Stories, and I'll talk to you guys in a minute. Before we get started, I'd like to thank our sponsor, BitPay, for making today's episode possible. We'll hear more about them later on in this episode. Untold Stories wouldn't be here without the amazing production company, Blockworks Group. A few months ago, I approached Blockworks Group and I said, hey guys, I want to do a show, Untold Stories. Can we make it happen? And these guys are the only event and podcast production company that I trust. Really, the show is powered by them and it wouldn't be here today without the amazing work of the Blockworks Group team. So for access to all the premier digital asset conferences and to check out their other podcasts in their network that they produce, check them out at blockworksgroup.io. That's blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. I'm excited today to have on the show, Dr. Lehman Baird. Doc, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Can I can I just call you Doc for the course of the show? <laughs> you can call me whatever you want. Doc Most people Le- call me Lehman, but All that right. is fine. Well, I'll, 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 fine. I'll do both. Um, you're the co-founder <laughs> and chief scientist of Hedera Hashgraph. And usually when I see someone who has a title, chief scientist, it it actually excites me because that means there's something for me to learn, right? Like what didn't I know before? And that it also kind of implies like a constant um, effort on your end 
to continue learning for you and developing and growing and um, doing a lot of things. And so, so thank you again for coming on the show. And I'm excited to like dive into it and to learn more about um, your history and how Hashgraph works. And, um, you know, you really, from, from the research that I've done, you really um, are, are, what's the word I'm trying to formulate? Um, this really is kind of the next wave of this type of technology. And what I mean by that, and, and I'll go into my first question. Um, it seems like from, from the readings and the writings of you and other people, um, Hashgraph is, is not another blockchain. It aims to provide the benefits of a blockchain and, you know, distributed ledger technology, but it's almost, you all, you guys almost see it as like the next wave, but you don't call it a blockchain. I'm, I'm a little confused by that. Can you kind of get into it? Sure. So it's a DLT, a distributed ledger technology. Um, some people use the word blockchain to mean DLT, in which case, sure, it's a blockchain. But another usage of the word blockchain is to mean something that is built out of a chain of blocks. And it's not built out of a chain of blocks. Uh, it's actually built in something much more decentralized than that. That's a very good point. I'm a little dumbfounded here. So that's a very good point. Um, we're always assuming that blockchains are anything that has come out of like, that even uses a little bit of, you know, anything from the Satoshi white paper, right? So this is a blockchain, that's a blockchain, permissioned, unpermissioned, you know, like there's all the different ones. But what you're saying here is, um, it's very interesting how, how, a blockchain is literally something that has to be made out of a chain of blocks. And this is not that. <laughs> That's true. This is not a chain of blocks. This is a distributed ledger technology. It does the things that you would want a blockchain to do. But by not having this chain of blocks, not having proof of work, uh, not having leaders, it gives you great speed. It gives you great security. It gives you resilience to DDoS attacks, attacks where people try to shut down one of your computers. Um, there's a number of advantages that come from not, not building it that way. Uh, but what it ends up doing is the same thing, just with more trust and more speed. I want to get into the details of it. But before I do, tell me about your background. Um, you taught at the U.S. Air Force Academy for many years, and you also worked and founded a bunch of different companies. Can you tell us a little about who you are, where you're from, and kind of where you first conceptualized the idea of building this whole new consensus algorithm? Oh, yeah. So um, I'm a computer guy. I really like math stuff, and I just play with math problems for fun. I got to be a professor for a long time at the Air Force Academy and a visiting professor elsewhere. I got to be a research scientist in a bunch of labs, and then I started uh, a bunch of companies. And so we had uh, two companies that we started that were acquired, and then we've started Swirls and Hedera to do the, the uh, hash graph uh, for public and private networks. And so I've done a lot of different things uh, in my life. And um, the, the common thread through them all is that it's just fun to play with computers, to play with math, to prove new things. I uh, really like math theorems uh, to show that all these things actually work. And I like fun problems to work on. And at one point, just for fun, I thought a fun problem to work on would be, could we have a bunch of people collaborating? Carve out a piece of cyberspace to just be a shared world that you can collaborate in and then have connections between the shared worlds and have incredible trust with great speed. And, you know, it's just it's an interesting math problem. You propose it as a math problem. And I was able to convince myself that, no, that's impossible. You can't do that. 
But for some reason, certain math problems just come back and, and keep latching on to me. And so I just kept coming back to it. And I would pick it up and I would play with it for a few weeks. What and was I would the think problem you were trying to solve? We want a bunch of people to be able to have transactions that are changing our shared data. You know, they're making changes to the state that we have. We're all um, writing a document and making changes to it, or we're all moving cryptocurrency around and making changes to it, or we're all creating something together. We're having an election and trying to see who wins the election, and we're making changes to who is currently our leader. All of those things, we want to all be able to put in our inputs and then in a fair way decide what the outcome is, where we all agree, even if some of us are malicious, even if some of us are bad and we don't really know each other, don't really trust each other, we still want to be able to do it. So I wanted to have asynchronous Byzantine fault tolerance, which is the technical term for being really secure in how you come to agreement. But I also want it to be very fast, uh, extremely fast. And that was the problem. We've known for decades how to make ABFT systems that are extremely secure, but they are just so slow. These old voting systems, I don't think have ever been used in the real world, to my knowledge, uh, but they're really, really secure. And then we have a bunch of fast systems that are not so secure because maybe they have a leader. And because there's a leader, you can shut down the leader and shut down the whole network. I wanted to do both. I wanted to be as fast as a system with no leader, but I wanted to have the security of those old voting systems. I mean, sorry, as fast as a system with a leader, but the security of a system without a leader. Yeah, yeah, I get, I get what yeah. you're trying to say. Um, yeah. What, I, what I'm trying to figure out is the evolution yeah. of of how in, in your head, yeah. you know, um, how yeah. it kind of came to be. So, walk me through like you kind of reading um, about Bitcoin, maybe reading the white paper. Um, it sounds like oh. you know, for many, many years, you were working on a lot of these math problems, and um, you were very familiar. Um, you know, with Byzantine fault tolerance and, and, and how this would all work. And then, so you're reading the white paper and it, did it not seem like it went far enough for you? Like, that's where I'm trying to, to figure out. Oh yeah. At what point did you say, this is cool, but I could do it better. Yeah. So I didn't. So, um, sure. I read the what white a humble paper. Guy. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so I read the, that, white paper. And I, I thought, well, okay, that's nice. I, I thought that was nice, but it seemed to totally unrelated to what I'm doing because it isn't ABFT. It isn't even BFT. It doesn't have that kind of security and it isn't super fast. They intentionally slow it down because, well, that's the whole purpose of the proof of work is to make it run slower so that we can take turns putting things on in the right way. It was really a different world than what I was dealing with. What I wanted to do was have these shared worlds where it's super fast and, and has super high security. And so I was working on a completely unrelated math problem and one day I realized, you know what? When we're sharing information, when you send someone a message, if you just add two hashes to it, then for free, we get a complete history of how we've all communicated. Everybody knows the complete history. And if you do that, you can run one of those old voting algorithms purely in your head without talking to each other at all. Well, it's the old Zero adage, if, if you knew where gossip came from, then there wouldn't be any gossip, <laughs> right? Like that's exactly. like, yeah. <laughs> That's exactly it. And so we know where the gossip came from. And so when I realized that, I realized that solved the problem. And then we started thinking about what we could do with it. And what you could do with it is you could do the things that blockchain is doing. So I never set out to make a better blockchain. I just set out to solve this interesting math problem. But when it was solved, I realized, yes, it can do all the things that blockchain does and do it with high security and speed. 
And so that's just kind of how it worked out. So then we started a company for it to, to do private ledgers, to, to prove it out. And then when that was going well, we started a company to do public ledgers. And that's Hedera. Can you explain to me more how it works in terms of the um, consensus algorithm? Mm-hmm. Sure. So we want to get consensus on the order that the transactions go in. We want anyone in the world to be able to submit transactions and then all the computers come to an agreement on what order they're in. We also wanted to come to an agreement on what time each one came into the network. So when did each one reach the network? And so what we do is we share these transactions just by gossip. And that's the fastest, simplest way of sharing things. Every ledger ends up using gossip for at least part of what it does uh, because it's just very resilient, very fast, very simple. I mean, it's super simple. You just call someone at random and tell them everything you know that they don't know. And then you call someone else at random and tell them everything you know that they don't know and just keep doing that forever. And these really are, no, are these nodes? Mm-hmm. Okay. These are the nodes. These are the computers. So in terms of so, rela- <laughs> relating, because a, a lot of people will understand like terms in, in, in Bitcoin yeah. and blockchain. Um, yeah. in, in this situation, nodes yeah. are the end all be all. There's no nodes and miners are the different types of nodes or are they all like this in the same class? Isn't that cool? They're all in the same class. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So it isn't that you give someone a transaction to be mined, and then they have to gossip that out, and then it's in a pool of things waiting to be mined. And then once it's mined, they have to gossip the mined block. It doesn't work in two steps like that. It's just a single thing. You submit your transaction, and it just gets gossiped to everybody. And as they're gossiping the transactions around, they take groups of transactions, and they add the two hashes to it. And then, without any further communication at all, they all look at their history. And for any given transaction, I not only get it, I see when everybody else got it. But if I know when everybody got it, I could take the time when Alice received it and the time when Bob received it and the time when Carol received it. I could just take that list of times and sort them and take the middle one. That's the median time. That's when it reached half the world. And that is the official timestamp on it. And if we all see the history, but you're assuming that, aren't you? Aren't you assuming that that's the median because that's that was the middle one? You're just taking a random middle one. What if like the first, like the first half of we're all in the same city, and then the second half we're distributed all over the world? Like, isn't that isn't that an attack vector? No, the there's a mathematical proof that if the majority of the nodes are honest, then you will get a timestamp from an honest node, or it'll be between the timestamps from two different honest nodes. And so, um, so you can't lie. Somebody could say, well, I received it a million years in the future, but because we're doing the median, it excludes outliers and it just doesn't really affect us very much. What about 51%? So if, if you have a majority of the nodes being dishonest, any ledger will fail. In fact, even 34% is enough to break any ledger. You know, can I tell you something crazy? This is, this is insane. It's so crazy how you said 34% because just yesterday, just yesterday, 35% came up in conversation. Do you know why? Because everyone is always talking about a 51% attack. But did you see what, what, what a bunch of, uh, Bcash or Bitcoin cash miners said yesterday? Um, a bunch of the miners made an announcement yesterday um, well, I shouldn't say yesterday because I may release this in a few weeks from now or whatever. Well, you know, for the sake of recording, this is the end of January. Um, but anyways, so they, anna- a bunch of like btc.top, antpool, bitcoin.com, like five or six mining pools came together yesterday. And this is, I can't believe this, like, and no one's talking about this. 
the CEO of one of the mining pools came together, came, made a blog post just last night, and he said, hey, me, my, my mining pool and these other mining pools have decided that we're going to donate 12.5% of all block awards of Bitcoin Cash to all the other miners, like it's gonna, uh, sorry, to 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 a developer pool, similar to like Dash and Zcash or whatever, like a developer pool. So I'm saying to myself, oh, this is so cool. Like all the miners got together and, you know, like I'm a big fan of socioeconomic experiments, right? So all the, all the, they all got together and they decided, you know, to do this. But then I'm reading on and it says any miner who doesn't do this, their blocks will automatically be orphaned. And I'm like, Shit, this is a fucking 51% attack right here. Like, they're forcing their will on everyone else. But it wasn't 51%. It was only 35%. It was only 35% of the hashing power. So this is a 35% attack. But, you know, I don't own any Bitcoin cash. But, but yeah, so what I'm saying now, I'm thinking now, like, what's going on here? Like, I'm a little confused. Like, will the other miners fall into play? Or will are 35% of the... The, the hashing power basically saying we're going to do this. We're going to orphan the other blocks. So we're basically, you know, saying our chain, even though it's only 35% will be the longest chain. If not, then the other, you know, 60 or whatever percent will have to follow us through 65, 70%, 65% will have to follow us through. So, I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of like weird and it's almost like not breaking news, but it's the reason I brought this up is because you said that you don't need 51%. You only need 34%. So here's a real world example of how right you are. <laughs> so this is interesting. So maybe the majority will fall in line with the minority, or maybe the majority will say, fine, we'll orphan your blocks. At which point you start to evolve into a split. It starts to fork. Um, I don't know how that'll end up, but uh, you always have this problem. Um, <laughs> Actually, governance is a really big deal when it comes to ledgers, and we can talk about that too. That's the other secret sauce we have is, is the governance. But um, but the 35% being able to impose their will is a fascinating sociological thing. A mathematical thing says that if an attacker has control of the internet, like they have firewalls around a big chunk of the nodes, that they can actually use a 34% of the, of the nodes or 34% of the hashing power or whatever, to, um, to do malicious things like double spends. I mean, you can actually do really bad things. If you control the internet and you control 34%, then you can cause really bad things to happen. And there's a math theorem that says nothing can do better than that. No one will ever invent a ledger that can do better than that. That's, that's the limit, is one third. Uh, if the bad guys get one third of the power, then they can do all that. So it, it, it's really interesting. Both that's the math of, part of it is No one talks yeah. about that. <laughs> so the whole idea is that, yeah. you know, with, with Bitcoin and with blockchains is that there's no economic incentive to, to do a 51% attack. And usually economic incentives are, are what um, really like incentivizes us to do anything. But there's also another incentive and that's, um, you know, approval, right? Like we want approval from other humans. Um, we want, no one wants to die alone and be buried in a grave by themselves. You know, it's why we get married. It's why we have children. It's why we care about our legacy. It's why it's how our brain works. I mean, that even, even money to, to what I think is a means to an end is a means to that social status, approval, validation, um, you know, brain mechanism. And so um, there is another attack vector. That's not an economic incentive. Rather, it's like if there's a bad actor who has another incentive to come and go after 
um, a blockchain. With Bitcoin at this point, the amount of, you know, I don't know what the exact hash rate is, but it would just be so expensive and take so long. And to to go after the Bitcoin blockchain, there's not a lot of incentive. But like, you know, for example, Bitcoin Cash is only $34,000 an hour to attack the chain ripples a lot less. Most of the other chains are a lot less. How do you prevent that? How do you how do you prevent that? You know, when someone has an immense economic or social incentive to attack your chain, and this is more for wargaming, right? Like, I like I, I'm a I'm like you. I'm a I'm a freaking geek and nerd with blockchains, consensus algorithms. One of the most fun things I like to do is is talk about like the types of stress tests that you know these blockchains have to go through, right? Like, remember 2008 with banks? What happened is that they were all stress tested to their max, but no one really. We never had stress tested or wargamed different scenarios in the banking world. So now it's almost like you and I, it's our duty here. If we're in this business, if we're in this industry, if here you are, you're you're developing and conceptualizing and engineering new distributed ledger technology, it almost, I would say, like we have a moral responsibility to wargame and stress test our own blockchains. Dr. Lehman Baird, answer my question. <laughs> So war games and game theory are incredibly important. I know. We really need to look at this. And you're right. There's the social aspects. There's the financial aspects. There's all sorts of different motivations. Some people attack it for the social recognition that comes from it. Some people will use it for the build it for the social recognition that comes from it. And then, of course, there's financial reasons all across the board. There can be financial reasons like I want to attack this ledger because I want to do a double spin to make money on a scam. But there could also be other financial reasons like I have a competing banking system and I want to crush it because it's competing with my banks. There's all sorts of financial motivations. You might want to attack a ledger. And you can look at certain game theoretic situations. For example, imagine that there's a ledger where most of the miners are in one country and the government of that country just nationalizes all their mining rigs and says, now the government owns it. And we don't like it because it's competing with our banks. We're going to make it do something malicious. And you could actually take a, um, a mining system, a proof-of-work system, and do something very malicious, have all the computers constantly extending the second longest chain instead of the longest. If you reprogram all those computers and they have the majority of the hashing power, then forever you end up with two chains growing at the same time and nobody can break out of it. Uh, you'd have to just start a whole new ledger entirely. So there's all sorts of interesting attacks here. Oh, you also asked how to mitigate. Yes, that, that was yeah. the, the most important question. Yeah. So, you know, BitPay has been a super long-term sponsor of Untold Stories and actually one of my favorite companies in the space. I've been using him forever since 2014. I've been using my BitPay debit card and I love it. I have actually had two of them at this point because I use it so much. Anyways, BitPay is launching their newest program. It's super cool. No one knows any details about it except for me and now except for you. It's still in stealth mode right now, but we've arranged that my listeners can get early access to their newest card program. So check it out. The first 100 people to sign up will get it literally free. All you have to do is go to bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. There's no catch. Go to bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. I've been using this product for years. This is the newest update. Everything about this product will beat the competitor on the market. Fees, limits, beautiful, sexy, little, sleek card. Everything about it is amazing. No one else has this opportunity except for you right now listening to this. Bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. You guys are going to love it. It's so cool. I cannot wait to get my hands on one. Well, for that, well, how do you mitigate it? I've, I've wargamed a yeah. lot of other blockchains, but yes. I, I want to be an expert 
on, yes. you know, what I see is the most important way. You've noticed on this show, yeah. I don't often have, you know, um, people and people on the show who have, um, you know, been involved in in the development of, of some of the different chains, unless I find them really fascinating and really cool. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, besides for like Bitcoin and, you know, Litecoin and a few other ones I've had, you know, uh, Arthur from Tezos and I'm having you and I'm really trying to like uh, learn and understand the coolest, wackiest different types of blockchains, because what will end up happening is, is that you'll have, you know, a Bitcoin, but you'll also probably have, you know, different chains in the future that are like, take the best of the best and, and some of the best and the worst, you know what I mean? And there's an yeah. evolution. Yeah. So now you can answer the question. <laughs> <laughs> so the problem of having centralization of your miners geographically, the way you solve it is, well, don't do that. Have them spread out. You need decentralized, geographically decentralized mining. Um, and really the answer is you don't do mining proof of work that uses lots of electricity because that inherently causes people to move to where the electricity is cheap. That's just an inherent thing. Uh, you will find that proof of work systems tend to have great concentrations of mining in the countries where electricity is cheap. And that's just basic economics. You would expect that. So you do want to get away from proof of work where you have to use lots of electricity to do the mining problem that slows everybody down. If you can get away from that, and if you can make sure that they start to spread out around the world so they're in different jurisdictions, under different governments, on different continents, that is extremely helpful. And this is where governance also comes into play. You want your governing to be done not just by a handful of developers that have socially ended up with more power over time, but you want to formally ensure that it is spread across the world on different continents, under different governments, in different systems. And that's what we do with our governance. We have gigantic companies around the world in different continents and different cultures and in different industries. All of them are large and have a reputation they want to, to protect. So they're not going to do something that destroys their reputation. And all of them are under different jurisdictions. No one government could take it all and make it do something bad. Um, it's decentralized from the beginning. And that's really what we've emphasized with Hedera is getting the governance right where the governance is decentralized in that way. I need to like ponder this, but, I, but I'm on a show and I can't take a few minutes to just sit in silence. So um, go, I want to go back to something you said for a second. You, you mentioned proof of work and, and energy. Yes. I, I'm kind of like, not over, but I feel like I'm, I'm a little spent on the, on the environmental, you know, proof of work is bad for the environment debate. And, and I'll tell you why. Um, I've, I visited a lot of mines. I visited, you know, over 40 countries. Um, I know all, I know a lot of the miners. I know some of the earliest miners. I know the people involved in mining pools. I know, and mostly Bitcoin. I know mining brokers. Safe to say I know a shit ton about mining and I, you know, actually mined on one of the first ASICs. Um, I had the second ASIC that was ever invented. I had um, mining like 30 Bitcoin a day. I know I turned it off because it was like too hot. Um, <laughs> but so my question is with and and I'm really curious to hear your answer because um, because this is, you know, your life work um, with proof of work. You wouldn't I mean, like you wouldn't agree with me. Or I mean, tell me, tell me where my thought process is wrong. Um, from from what I see, what I've seen in the past few years is that miners are actually using a excess energy that's that's otherwise going to be going to waste and not actually be used. 
They're not diverting energy away from hospitals and schools. Um, in fact, places where energy is actually mining is actually being used, whole cities, municipalities and states are loving it because now they have income that they wouldn't otherwise not have. Um, and then the last point is that miners are actually freaking building dams like hydropower dams. So I guess my point is, is that let's be honest, like climate change, environmentalism, the Green Party, we've been talking about it for decades, but no one really has has cared. But now, and when I mean cared, I mean like there has never been a, an economic incentive until now. There has never been a real need or, or feeling or urgency to create and to um, to develop more efficient, um, cleaner, and better energy until Bitcoin mining, until proof of work. Like there was never a need for it, but now there is. And now that that's happening. So, I mean, how is that bad for the environment? Isn't, isn't it the complete opposite? And, and then, on, you know, and that's not even getting into like physics, you know, how proof of stake actually defies the law of physics, the laws of physics. And we'll get it. I can get into that after. But I mean, l take my first point. Where, where is my train of thought wrong? Like where, where is my train of thought broken? Well, I think in the short term, we can say that, that um, there might have been an unused resource and the Bitcoin miners were just, you know, using the unused resource or whatever miners were. I think that's true in the short term. In the long term, what we've seen is that company, countries that have an excess of energy, say Norway, um, don't just let it go to waste. What they do is they build cement factories or aluminum smelting. Those tend to be incredibly energy intensive. Um, in a lot of ways, most of the cost of concrete comes from the energy that it took to create the cement that's in it. And so what they do is they export their energy to the world, not in the form of selling batteries, but in the form of selling concrete or doing aluminum uh, smelting, which is also very um, energy intensive. So there may be some countries that built a dam and didn't get around to building any industries to use that electricity. And so the electricity was temporarily going unused. But if that situation continued for any amount of time, you would eventually find a cement factory being built there. Some outside investor would build it and would take advantage of it. And so if you think of what humanity as a whole is doing with its energy, we're typically not going to allow um, a valuable resource to just go unused. If we're producing electricity, we're not just going to waste it. Well, somebody will find a use for it. And if those uses end up being used for things that we're going to do anyway, like using concrete and aluminum. Oh, I see your things. point. I, I yeah. see your point now that you're making yeah. it. You're you're saying it, what what your point is is that there are a lot better things to do with that energy than than basically mine Bitcoin. Sure. And so um, I, I think that's fine. I think Bitcoin will continue to be proof of work, but you notice a lot of other chains really want to get away from that. Ethereum wants to get away from that. There's a lot of advantages. I know, to but I don't it. understand why. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, I do understand yeah. why, but I guess they're like, I have a list mm -hmm. of, mm -hmm. I have a list of um, reasons why I like proof of work better. And until, until someone has been able to convince every, you know, me on every little thing, I, I still will believe that proof of work is better. But let me ask you a question about proof of stake. And, and I don't, I don't dislike it. I mean, if I had a t-shirt that said, I love consensus algos, I would wear that. Yeah. Like, yeah. I could do a whole podcast on literally just talking about the different ones, like delegated proof of stake. There's such cool 
they're such cool experiments in human like interaction, aren't they? Like when you take the money factor out of it, the socioeconomic experiments of like how us as humans, like how do we, you know, like they're almost like different de uh, democratic experiments, like how would different democracies work? But when you put your money where your mouth is um, on, on these chains, then people treat voting very differently. Right. Um, so with this, um, when it comes to proof of stake, right. Energy with physics, and you you know this better than I do, energy can never be created or destroyed. It can only be transferred. What I see with proof of work is actually the, the, the transferring of energy um, to something that is worth energy being transferred. I see as like, here you have units of energy that are now being transferred into making this chain more secure. Um, and so to go to, and, and so that's the best way to secure the chain, in my opinion. Now, I, I I like your point. Your point is that there are better ways to secure these chains. And so why are we wasting electricity and energy on it when there are better ways to do it without wasting energy, correct? Is that, is that, was that your, so, but how, how are they better? How is proof of stake, how is Hashgraph better in terms of distribution, fairness, um, in terms mm -hmm. of like attack vectors, mm -hmm. how is it better? Okay. So you have to, when you're doing these voting things, you have to have some kind of a scarce resource involved because people can be anonymous. And if you didn't have a scarce resource involved, somebody would pretend to be a million people. Sybil attacks. Yes. Exactly. You have civil attacks. So you have so to have some So this is first on my list, by the way. Yes. Yes. So what's the scarce resource? It could be something of real world value like electricity, and you basically just waste it. But since a civil attack couldn't afford to waste that much electricity, then it works. Or it could be a different scarce resource like the cryptocurrency itself. You could have your ledger has a cryptocurrency that is by definition a scarce resource if you don't have money supply inflation. Um, you know, if you keep it constant, then it's a scarce resource. And you could use that as your scarce resource to stop the civil attacks. Either way it works. You can stop civil attacks either way. One nice thing about using the cryptocurrency as the scarce resource instead of destroying electricity as your scarce resource is that it tends to avoid the concentration you see. You don't see geographic concentration in areas with cheap electricity because you don't really need much electricity. And you don't see um, concentration in the number of miners that are doing most of the mining because it doesn't take an expensive mining rig to do it. It just takes the cryptocurrency. And so if you can get rewards proportional to how much cryptocurrency you have, then there's incentives to have lots of people doing it. So this is, I think, the reason that people are looking for ways to be able to use a scarce resource different from just wasting electricity, but something like the cryptocurrency itself. And of course, proof of stake isn't one thing. It's a million different things. Uh, it's just any system that uses the cryptocurrency as the scarce resource you call a proof-of-stake system. Uh, and so lots of different people are experimenting with different ways of switching to a different scarce resource rather than destroying a real-world thing. Um, and so that's that's the idea. Well, how do you have a scarce resource that you're not going to destroy and then have it continue to be scarce? Well, it doesn't have to be... <laughs> if you have a limited supply right? of coins... Well, sure. So the idea is that you have a, a there's only so many coins in the world. Uh, so, you know, there's only so many ETH or so many H bars or so many Bitcoins that exist. 
And so it is a scarce resource in the economic sense. It's not unlimited. More specifically, a Sybil attack cannot on the moment create a trillion coins out of thin air. They can't create any coins out of thin air. They have to get them from somewhere. And if they try to buy them on the open market, they have to spend real money to get them. And the more they buy, the more expensive the coins become because the market notices that someone's trying to corner the market on coins. Uh, so assuming that you don't have just a little tiny ledger, assuming that it's a large system, you know, a lot of people use it, there's a lot of value there, it becomes hard to corner the market on it. And just like with commodities, if you try to corner the market, it becomes that's, even more hard. So that's the distribution. That's the distribution debate. Yeah. And yeah. that's how do you have fair distribution when it comes to to your coin? And then basically the the counter response is that everyone has a price. So it's physically impossible to completely corner the market because eventually someone will have to sell. That's a that's a very basic, you know, tenement of, of economics. Um, I guess. You know what? Let me ask you a question. And this is this is a question that I've been formulating in my head for a long time, but I've never really asked a lot of people um, except for myself. Do you think that a blockchain or a distributed ledger technology or a network, let's just call them networks for now. You know, that's is that that's is that a fair way to describe like all these, you know, the Ethereum network, the Bitcoin network, the the Hedera Hashgraph network. These are just all networks and they fully encompass their their users, their 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 token holders, their transactors, their miner, the whole industry, companies, blah, 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 compliant, everything all falls in, in the network, just for the sake of the question. Um, if a network starts with, if a network launches and the distribution is not as fair, if it's not as decentralized as it needs to be, if it's, if it has all these properties, but the understanding, you know, and the plan is to eventually become fully decentralized and fully fair distribution and fully more secure and all these different things. Do you think then you think that in the long term, a, a network can succeed or are they doomed to fail from the start? No, you can do what you said. If you're in some sense going from permission to unpermissioned as a path, and if you start with some reason for people to trust it, then it actually is a worthwhile path. So actually, we're doing that right now. We've got 10 council members. These are gigantic companies spread around the world in different jurisdictions, different markets, and so on. So if you trust them to take care of their own self-interest, you can trust them not to do things like do a double spend on the network or you know, greatly inflate the money supply. You can, you can trust them for, to run the network in a reasonable way. You start with them running the nodes and controlling it. And then over time, as it grows, as a distribution of coins becomes uh, more uniform, as you were talking about, and as the coins become more valuable, so it's harder and harder to corner the market, then they allow more and more of the nodes to be run by uh, other people. So you can go from the council running the nodes to trusted people running the nodes, that's permission, and then going to anonymous people running the nodes, that's unpermissioned, and so it can spread out. And so what you end up with is you end up bootstrapping a system. It ends up with the coins being widely distributed, just like fiat is widely distributed. There are rich people and poor people, but overall, it would be very hard for any one person to get one third of all the US dollars in the world. That would be very, very hard. And so you end up in that end state, but you could start with permissioned going to unpermissioned over time if the permissioned is run by a diverse enough set that you can trust it. And so that's what Hedera does. We start with this council, 
And then we have this path over time. So it's like, you're saying that there could be like a path to decentralization. Yes. And I think the path has to start with first decentralizing the governance, and then you decentralize the nodes. And the decentralization of the coin, of course, happens over time. Okay, so we haven't talked about governance yet, and I'm and I'm curious to talk about it. But before we do that, um, I wanted to ask: um, at this point in time, at at time of speaking, you know, you're on this path to decentralization, and it's very honorable and noble. At this point, what are the biggest, you know, bottlenecks you see with Hashgraph right now? And are you know, are you or your your co-founders or your people? Do are, are, do you guys have like an unfair advantage at this point, which is okay, but under on the understanding that down the road you don't want to have that anymore. Almost like, almost like you know, like um, you know how I, I'm trying to think of another example of another chain that right now. Oh, for I'll, I'll use Ripple as an example. Well, actually, it's a bad example, but when Ripple first launched, they had their you know like only Ripple Labs was the only validator. But under the assumption that down the road, there'll be thousands and thousands of validators. Now, I haven't checked how many validators they have now. I think it's like 20 or 30 or whatever. So it's still not fully decentralized. And I don't want to talk about Ripple and its decentralization because that's another topic. But do you see my question, right? Like, so what happened mm -hmm. like right now? And, and, and I love that. I love, you know, the humility because, you know, it's important to talk about what the good things and the ones that you want to change are. Are there anything right now that if you could have more fully distributed or um, um, decentralized now on, on Hedera Hashgraph or on Hashgraph, what would they be? So this is what's exciting, is that we're um, moving down this path, and it's actually several parallel paths that we're moving down. We are getting more council members, but we do have 10, and they're running 10 nodes, but we are still doing some things manually that should be automated, and we're working on that right now. We are getting more council members when I have 39, ultimately. Uh, we have 10 right now. We'll be announcing several over the very near future, uh, which are our big names, which what's are a, nice. What's a council member? So the way it works is that I don't own Hedera. I don't own any piece of Hedera. I don't even own one share of Hedera. Hedera is, a, is an inside-out holding company. It's sort of like what Visa was when it first started. Hedera is entirely owned by these council members by these big companies that each own an exactly equal share of Hedera, and they decide what Hedera does. So when I say that IBM is one of our council members, I don't mean that IBM is an advisor to us. I mean that today IBM owns one-tenth of Hedera and has one-tenth of the vote in the council meetings where we're voting on what to do. Uh, the council members are these enormous companies. Deutsche Telekom is the largest telecom in Europe. Sure. And Nomura, Nomura is one of the largest financial institutions in Japan. Um, Magalu is one of the largest retailers in Latin America. These guys each own an exactly equal fraction of the company. I own nothing. And I mean, I, I, have, I have influence. I can talk to them and, you know, they listen to me. Well, where does Swirls do what I say? How does Swirls, you know, where do they fit in? Doesn't Swirl, from what I understand, it, doesn't it own the patent, the patent for the technology here? Yes, but it has an irrevocable um, license to the company, to Hedera. Hedera, they can't stop Hedera from using it. And it, it's, um, it is a council member. But can it, can so, it prevent, like, what if, what if uh, a developer writes an amazing application down the road that's worth a billion dollars, but it's because it's technology that's owned by you guys, you'd have, like, uh, an ownership in that, no? Oh, no, we don't own apps that are built on top of us. 
people are building cool dApps all the time. We have no okay. ownership of that. Yeah. Okay. Because that was one of the first things I was thinking about. Okay. Oh, yeah. It's important. No, no. No, no. People can develop on top of us without even talking to us. Uh, but if they do talk to us, we try to give them advice. But you wouldn't own that swirls if they're using Hashgraph? No, if, no. Okay. No, no. If they're building on top of the Hedera network, they can, in fact, with AppNets, they're almost building their separate networks that use Hedera for the, for the consensus. Um, we don't own what they build. And people can build some really cool things. And they're building cool things right now. They've deployed cool things already. Uh, we don't own any of that. I mean, people can just build on top of us. Any, anybody who wants to can build on top of, of Hedera. Was it different before? Like when you first launched, was it different in, in who owned what and how the patents were done and things like that? So Hedera has been what I've described from the beginning, except, of course, when we first made our announcement, we had no council members. So at that point, sure, Swirls controlled Hedera. It was the only, it was the only council member. Uh, but now we have 10. We'll be announcing more soon, and we will get to 39. How does someone so, become a council member? Can I become one? Like, what, what does it entail? No. So no, it needs to be... He said no. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize. Well, of course you can become a council member. Now, I assume you have at least a 25 billion market share and you've been around for decades. But assuming <laughs> that you meet those criteria, yes, of course you can, you can be a council member. Um, no, so it really is that. It needs to be, it needs to be very large, so many billions uh, market cap. It needs to be uh, well-respected and it's been around for a while, so it's not just going to go away tomorrow. But in addition to that, <laughs> I told you, decentralization in governance is really critical. So we have identified 18 different market sectors, and we're saying we're not going to allow too many council members in any market sector. Any one market sector can only have at most three council members. And so uh, we, are, we would say no to the biggest company on earth if it's in a, a market that we already have two, uh, three other council members. We also will not allow them all to be geographically concentrated. We are ensuring that they are spread out, and already we're on multiple continents. Uh, and we're in Asia and Europe and South America and North America. Uh, we're spread out and we want to get more spread out over time. Um, sadly, we'll probably never be in Antarctica. That little research lab there probably is not big enough to no. be a council member. But other than that, we want to be on all of the continents. And someday I hope we'll have it on the Mars colony as well. So we, went, we want to be as decentralized as possible geographically and by market sector. We want them all to be very large and have a large track record. So they have a reputation they want to, rep to protect. We also, and by the way, we're doing everything with great transparency. People will be able to run mirror nodes where they're actually watching the consensus going on and verifying that we're doing it right. And we're releasing all of our software as open review and the upper layers of our software is open source so people can see what we're doing. Great transparency to make these giant companies want to protect their name by not doing something evil. And in addition to all that, we've said council members have to be centralized in time. A council member has a three-year term, and they could be re-elected by their member, fellow members for a second three-year term, and that's it. After six years, no matter how big the council member is, they have to leave and be replaced, and the rest of the council votes on who the replacement is. And um, they could come back in the future, but not, not immediately. They have to wait three years before they can come back. So that is what we are trying to do with our council members, is make them as decentralized as possible and also as trustworthy as possible. Um, and that's how we do it. Have you had times where council members were wanting to leave or be kicked out or try to force their way in? <laughs> you know, you would imagine all that stuff will happen eventually. Uh, we haven't had that yet. But, you know, humans being humans, I imagine you'll see that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah. No, we're in the early days. Everybody's still happy. <laughs> so, you know, wait. And I'm sure there'll be politics and squabbles and so on. 
Um, the good news, though, is that everyone is forced to have an equal vote. And so they kind of have to get along because um, no one council member can dominate everybody else. How does it work with every participant needing to know the total number of participants in the system? The each node needs to know how many H bars are owned by every account in the system. That's what you need. Where does that number come from? The same place that Bitcoin gets it and the same place that Ethereum gets it. Okay. The, in their case, it's a blockchain. In our case, we call it a ledger, but it's the same thing. The whole point of a cryptocurrency is that there is agreement among all the nodes on how many cryptocurrency coins are in each account. That is what you need. For a proof of stake system, what you need to know is how much cryptocurrency each account has. So do you have and a that's blockchain all, that's all within Hashgraph? Is there, is there, do you have like a sub ledger that just maintains this number? Oh, yeah, we should talk about the difference here. Yes. So what, what we have is we maintain a state. The state is all the information that we have. So it tells you how many coins are in every account. It tells you what files are stored. It tells you what all the smart contracts are. And it tells you the state that each smart contract has, You know the information it stores within itself. That is the state of the ledger. All of the nodes maintain the state. And as they put the transactions in order, they process them in the approved consensus order, and they all update the state appropriately. So if I give you some coins, the state is updated so that I now have fewer coins and you have more. I've lost some H-bars, you've gained some H-bars. And we make sure then that this number of H-bars in the whole state put together is always a constant. So every ledger does this. So every node knows how many H-bars are in each account. Furthermore, any random person on the planet anonymously can ask us, hey, how many H-bars are in this account? And the node can tell them. And we're implementing a state proof system where it can even tell them with cryptographic proof that it's not lying. And this is something that you don't usually have with ledgers. No. But I think it's important. I think people need to be able to ask these nodes, hey, can you tell me something about the current state and get a cryptographic proof that, yes, the ledger as a whole has agreed that this is truly the state. And so anybody can do that. And then we have mirror nodes. And the mirror nodes get all the information, not just, you know, they don't have to ask, hey, what's the balance of one account? They get all of the accounts, all of the files, all the smart contracts and the data. They see all the transactions. They put them into order themselves to check up on the, the network. And the mirror nodes can be run by anybody on the planet. And we already have that open sourced and several people have now started running mirror nodes. And you can go to them and ask information, and they'll tell you the information. And, uh, and there, too, uh, they will be able to give you state proofs. And we have these state proofs implemented to cryptographically prove to you that they're not lying. And so that's how this works. What's the next step? Like, what's the next, yes. what's the next yes. step and level for you guys? Absolutely. So there are several parallel paths, and we are taking rapid steps on each of the paths. One is to get more council members. That is happening. One is to um, add things to the software. Like I just talked about state proofs. We're working on that right now. We will hit, we'll be having that. We have um, Actually, I have a webinar coming up in a week or two where, that we'll be talking about our roadmap. But we will be building the, this in, the ability to do the state proofs. We'll be making the ledger faster and, and uh, cleaner and easier to use in various ways. The really exciting thing we're adding to the ledger is the Hedera Consensus Service, which is a whole new kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> and we should talk about that. It lets you set up your own ledger, your own, your own network of computers, and you can be as private as you want, but you can gain the trust of Hedera by having Hedera put your transactions in order for you. 
And so then you have this trust of a giant company spread around the world, decentralized by market and by time and all of that. You, everybody can trust your little network, but your little network could be totally private or could be public or whatever you want. And people can trust it, not because they trust the computers in your network, but because they trust Hedera. And so that is something we're rolling out in a couple of weeks, and I'm very excited about that. Um, the Hedera Consensus Service. Actually, by the time this podcast goes out, uh, possibly it will already have been released at that point. Well, I hope, so we're working on. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, I hope we can coordinate the release with with a release for you to make sure that you know it gets the right attention. Oh, cool! Uh, even better. Um, so we're very excited about that. And then we have users. A ledger is totally useless if nobody uses it. There is no point in a ledger if people don't use it. And so we have companies that have built on it right now. We have companies in the pipeline that we're talking to that want to be using it. And it's interesting. For new people that we talk to, the thing that gets people most excited is this new consensus service. What's your developer community like, though? Yeah. So we have a lot of developers. We have independent people who have even built SDKs. So to use our system, we have this SDK that we give away. Um, that uh, lets you write Java programs that use our system. We've had outside developers write SDKs in other languages. Uh, we've had outside developers build uh, programs. We've had people build games. We've had people build um, interesting uh, tools. And then we've also had people building real websites for like, like a block uh, chain explorer, like a block um, explorer kind of thing uh, that show you our history. And what are all the balances right now? You know, you can go to Dragonglass, you can go to HashArc, and you can go to HashHash. Uh, these are different um, websites that you can go to that show to the world what we're doing, some of our metrics of how we're running. You can look up the balance in any account. You can look at the history of all the transfers in and out of any account. And they have really nice GUIs, and one of them has a graph on the screen, a map on the screen with dots showing where we are. There's just all sorts of interesting things that people are building on top of us right now. And that's just the stuff that's built so far. We have a lot of people that are talking with us, that are working with us to build more things that will be deployed, and actually lots of real businesses, both startups and established businesses that are building on top of us. Dr. Lehman Baird, thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the show today. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. How can how can my listeners follow you? How can they see what's going on with, with the project, with the development community? How can someone become a council member? What's, what's if, you know, if someone's listening, they, they want to learn more, they love the project, what's their next step? That is great. So there are lots of links to all that stuff on the Hedera.com website. So if you go to Hedera.com, H-E-D-E-R-A.com, you, we have links to social media things within Twitter accounts and LinkedIn accounts and all those sorts of things. We also have a whole bunch of podcasts and videos, and we have email addresses. You can contact us and talk to us about all these things. And we are really excited about getting people involved. And so it'd be great for people to come see it. I'm really excited for financial literacy. I want people to learn, understand different consensus algorithms, different blockchains, because if you're a maximalist or you love one and you believe that all the other ones are trash, then it's my belief that you need to be an expert on all the ones that you believe are trash. And until you become an expert or fully understand all the other blockchains or whatever, then you can't be a real maximalist, in my opinion. So my goal for this show, besides for documenting history of of our industry, is to also make sure that people who love or hate a project become fully understandable and have literacy. Because if we all have knowledge, 
then the powers that be won't be able to control us and and you know we will no longer be sheep so doc thank you so much for coming on the show and educating us and so we can learn more and thanks for the wargaming too like that's that's what really gets me excited <laughs> it is exciting and thanks so much for this opportunity i've really enjoyed talking with you as as the pleasure is all mine thank you again hey everyone thanks for listening new episodes of untold stories are released every tuesday and thursday at 7 a.m est on untoldstories.com apple spotify or wherever you get your podcast untold stories is produced by jason yanowitz michael e polito reed hannaford and riley silbert of blockworks group our account executives are gina de felice and julie muroff our content is written by kathy zolo ronnie tishner and scott offered special thanks to wayne delaire from jump dog audio productions and of course i'm your host charlie shrem you can follow me on twitter at charlie shrem to continue the conversation send me some messages feedback or anything you want to say and remember please give some love to my sponsors and i'll see you next week remember strength in numbers and information is power <laughs>